Welcome to Herrick Does That, a podcast on current legal topics, relevant industry and legal trends, and significant developments in the law, brought to you by the attorneys of Herrick Feinstein. I'm Erwin Kishner, Herrick's executive chairman, and I want to thank you for joining us. Hi, this is uh, Mitch Warby uh, once again. Welcome. I'm at Herrick uh, Feinstein and head of our zoning and land use practice. Uh, and part of a robust group of lawyers uh, and practitioners at, at my firm uh, who are engaged in a full-service practice of the law with a focus on urban real estate, but a broad-based practice in, in litigation, corporate world, and we're here to uh, serve your, your needs and, and we partner with our clients. Um, and I, I'm here today once again with my colleague Ray Levin. Uh, those of you that tuned into our prior podcast learned about Brooklyn and learned about its general planning and history and background and zoning. Um, but today we're going to drill down a bit and we're going to focus on uh, how Brooklyn has evolved as a set of communities, how it's changed with regard to its racial and ethnic uh, characteristics. Um, essentially, what's happened with Brooklyn uh, in terms of the folks who live here and in the borough, uh, in our largest borough, in terms of population. Um, let me begin, as I may have mentioned last time, with the idea that Brooklyn is just about at its population peak that it last reached in 1950, when it was a very different place, at least in terms of its character, shall we say, or characters, right? People who lived and breathed and occupied the borough. Um, we are about as big in Brooklyn as, I say we, because both Ray and I live in Brooklyn, um, uh, Brooklyn is about as big as Chicago now. If it were an independent city, it would be the third, third largest city in America. Uh, and it's a vibrant, strong, uh, remarkable uh, place. But it has changed. It has evolved. Um, some people are comfortable and, and are embracing of this change. Others, less comfortable. Um, but let's just jump right in. Greetings, Ray. Uh, how are you today? Oh, I'm great. I'm great. And uh, happy to be here again. Um, and as last time, I think uh, I will, uh, you know, start with, with my history because my history is Brooklyn's history. Um, and, uh, and since we're talking about changes, um, uh, I was brought up in the 1950s in Bushwick, um, which uh, according to the census data, um, Brooklyn in the 1950s uh, was, um, 92% uh, white, um, and obviously today that's uh, changed uh, dramatically. Um, in fact, the white population of Brooklyn is now in the minority, not the majority. Um, and those changes occurred because of forces, both um, sociological and forces governmental. Um, uh, I lived in Bushwick, and uh, at that time, the house that my parents owned was their only asset. Um, and there was uh, what was called uh, blockbusting at the time. Um, and uh, the real estate brokers reached out to homeowners, tried to scare them into selling their houses. Um, very uh, direct attacks. Uh, at trying to stoke fear, um, it, so it took a, a um, 
white ethnic community, uh, blue collar, um, and a lot of people sold their homes. Uh, and they sold them to uh, mostly African Americans who were yearning and coming up from the South. One of the great uh, migrations in the United States uh, happened in the 50s and 60s as uh, African Americans uh, seeking a better life uh, left uh, the discrimination in the, in the South. Um, and uh, unfortunately, to some extent, uh, you know, met it up in the North as well. Um, so uh, what happened was um, the real estate brokers and mortgage lenders uh, provided mortgages to, uh, to people who uh, couldn't afford them. And uh, therefore, the properties were repossessed. People made money, not the people who took out the mortgages, but others. Uh, and, uh, and things changed. Um, the other major, besides this migration and the fact that there were these real estate brokers who were trying to uh, you know, gain their, gain uh, um, uh, commissions by, uh, by turning over houses, um, there was also the government uh, post after World War II made a lot of uh, um, loans available. Uh, those loans sort of spurred the, the suburbs. Um, so as people were coming and buying houses in Brooklyn, other people who sold their houses moved to Levittown and got uh, government-backed mortgages for that. Um, unfortunately, those government-backed mortgages were not provided to the African-Americans who were coming up from the South, uh, and that was called redlining. So you had uh, Blockbusting on one side, scaring people to sell their houses because the neighborhood uh, ethnicity was going to change. And on the other hand, you had uh, the African Americans who were coming up here who couldn't get a mortgage uh, or got it on very bad terms. Um, and that's changed um, Brooklyn and the city dramatically by, uh, by 1970. Uh, the Black population in Brooklyn was 25%. Um, by, uh, by 19, uh, 1980, it was over almost a third, 33%. And so uh, those changes happened. Neighborhoods uh, where my relatives were in Brownsville uh, became almost 100% African American um, by the uh, 70s and 80s, um, and so that's, those are dramatic changes caused by big forces having nothing to do with zoning. <laughs> so, so you know, this we're supposed to be discussing zoning at some point, and we'll get there. Don't worry. Um, well, so, so this this significant, uh, remarkable, really uh, uh, ethnic racial uh, change uh, came about through uh, private and public actions that that seemed. Deliberate and and sort of at the same time, at, I guess at the time, uh, kind of transparent, uh, not not really well known certainly to people. Um, I'm also wondering about uh, another force that may have been at work: um, the construction of the Verrazano Bridge in 1964, linking Brooklyn with Staten Island, and then in prior years, uh, you know, Robert Moses and the advent of the Interstate Highway and 
and as you touched on, suburbanization. Closing close to the Navy Yard, which employed 60,000 people during the war, which was also in the early 60s, as I recall. Right, so as Industry City and Brooklyn's manufacturing sector waned, uh, those kinds of jobs left. Um, but getting back to the, the growth of, of, uh, of Staten Island, which, is the, which became a borough that was largely uh, white ethnic, um, and then the infrastructure in the city, what, what was that a contributing factor as well, or um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I a lot of this is from my experience. Mm -hmm. I'm not an academic in, yeah. in this sense, um, and uh, and so I'm not, I'm not sure whether the whether those uh, those changes certainly the the jobs going away um, helped people how to how to find new jobs. Uh, you know, my my father had worked in the Navy Yard. Uh, when it closed, he had to find another job. He actually found a job that was not in New York City, as it turned out. Um, so uh, I don't, you know, I don't know whether the development on Staten Island of, of uh, single and two-family homes uh, was spurred by that, um, but certainly Long Island was. Um, and then, and then, fast forwarding a bit um, to the nineteen seventies and the. Um, the unrest in the city, also in the late in the late sixties, um, and you know maybe culminating in the blackout, which was what in seventy seven. In seventy yeah, something. Yeah. Um, th this this led to a lot of uh, you, you know tumult, to say the least, in, in not just in Brooklyn but throughout the city. But focusing on Brooklyn, um, there was a lot of disinvestment. Uh, and you know, among other things, fires were set. Neighborhoods that were once vibrant and, and did have a lot of change, um, you know, saw uh, population loss, and uh, Brooklyn's population began to decline at the same time as this phenomenon was occurring, or maybe slightly after it began. What are the reasons why why that happened? Was this disinvestment and the unrest. Yeah, I mean Brooklyn, you know, the, the population fell by nearly four hundred thousand from uh, from nineteen fifty to nineteen ninety. Uh, yeah, you know, the city in the seventies was uh, considered more much more dangerous than it is now, uh, with more than two thousand murders, and and uh, it, it, it and Brooklyn certainly was not. Um, the jewel of the city that it is today, and the you know the worldwide uh, people, worldwide people are trying to copy it. And there is a Brooklyn restaurant or, or a retail store in every city in Europe. So, um, but that was not the case in the nineteen seventies. Uh, uh, the you know housing stock was stable; it wasn't really growing at the time, uh, and some of it was deteriorating. Um, um, so uh, it was not looked as as a, a great place to live. Brooklyn Heights in the seventies, I think, as, as we mentioned before, with booming houses, and, and it was a different uh, different than than the uh, very expensive uh, brownstones that uh, that people cover today. And in fact, in Bed Stuy, over the last decade or so. Um, um, people have realized that the housing stock there was 
you know, really terrific and, uh, and have gone and purchased those properties. And many of those properties, I assume, were purchased from, uh, from African Americans who moved there in the, in the 70s, uh, when it was not considered a great place to be. Um, and, you know, that sort of, I think, eventually will get us to discuss this new uh, zoning provision that was uh, recently adopted uh, to require some racial equity uh, to be looked at in, in uh, when, uh, when zoning changes are coming through, uh, through the city. Well, that's a, a really good segue, uh, Ray. Um, and it occurs to me, by the way, that we didn't get a chance to really fully introduce you at the beginning. Uh, of course, the, the, the listeners who listened in on our first podcast you know, were introduced to you, Ray, as somebody who has a long history as a public servant in the city, uh, participating in the early days and in, in the middle period at the Board of Estimate, uh, and then um, having joined the private sector several years ago uh, in the zoning and land use field. Uh, and maybe you, you can touch a bit more on your, your, uh, your career. Um, I guess it spanned quite some time and enables you to speak um, the way you do um, uh, and sharing with us these, these ideas and, and, and uh, thoughts. Um, so I'll let you do that, but also to your point about uh, the, the current day, uh, these issues resonate to this day. And, and as Brooklyn has evolved, as I touched on initially, uh, some uh, feel that this evolution uh, uh, is not so positive, perhaps, and the character of the community as being um, one that was uh, more mixed racial uh, has has been changing through through gentrification, which is generally an economic phenomenon, but has certainly racial and ethnic overtones. Um, and to repeat the mistakes of the past would be a terrible thing. Uh, and to find ways to address them would be a good thing. But what role does government have in addressing these issues is the thorny question. What role does land use policy and new development have in the government's effect on controlling new development? What does that have to do with these questions? So let's maybe start touching on that, how yesterday relates to today. But let me just give you a sec to just remind people uh, who you are. Oh, well. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, Brooke, Brooklyn kid. Um, have a degree in architecture from City College. Uh, was very uh, lucky to go to a city university, uh, which uh, allowed uh, a lower middle class kid to go to college and graduate without millions of dollars in debt, um, uh, and then uh, went to work for the Department of City Planning, having uh, not been able to secure a reasonable job in the architecture field, um, and was at City Planning for uh, eight years, um, and um, worked uh, under John Zuccotti, and then uh, after that went, uh, went to work for the Brooklyn Borough President who at the time was uh, on the Board of Estimate, which uh, voted on land use and everything else in the, in the city. It was one of uh, uh, eight members, five borough presidents, uh, the mayor, the controller, and the president of council. Uh, that body was eliminated for violating one person, one vote. Um, and uh, once that happened, I 
progressed to the private sector and uh, bounced around the private sector for uh, for the last umpteen years. Um, so that's that's me. Um, in terms of uh, what we're talking about um, and the uh, the changes, I mean the, the changes that we were talking about were caused by forces, uh, as we said, governmental and private, um, but I guess uncontrolled in a sense. Um, there was some will behind them, but uh, the reasons um, for some of those actions, uh, which ended up with uh, you know large swaths of Brooklyn um, becoming uh, African American and basically to a large extent low low income. Whether whether the folks who were who were behind that um, did it knowingly or or not, we don't know. But here we are, and as Mitch said, um, you know what what can happen. I mean, a lot of a lot of people are now you know they they blame gentrification for forcing out people, forcing out. Uh, lower income people, forcing out people of color, um, changing neighborhoods dramatically. You know, what What can be done about that? What causes it? Uh, causing it, I guess, to some extent, is the city's population expanding, people trying to find places to live. And therefore, the, the centers of the city are moving out, both in Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx. Uh, People are, are living further away from their jobs. Uh, they're living further out, which they wouldn't have considered uh, decades ago, young people. And so this notion that somehow zoning has allowed that to happen, I think, is, is something that's, that's trying to be addressed. Um, and this latest uh, uh, initiative on the part of the city council uh, to require racial equity reporting when you when you file for certain zoning changes projects is something that you're supposed to use as a as an applicant. Um, you're supposed to use to make sure that you're applying standards of fair housing. And the legislation requires the collection of a huge amount of data. There's nothing wrong with that. You're going to learn everything about a neighborhood over two decades. Uh, all the housing units, uh, the ethnicity of all the people, um, uh, the economics of all the folks, and uh, and then that is supposed to um, factor into how government will make decisions about improving individual projects. Um, the legislation does not say how all of that data gets interpreted and how it will be used to uh, affect uh, decision-making. Th this leads me, at least, to think of another initiative of the City Council, which is comprehensive planning. And maybe I'm getting off, off topic here, but it, it seems to me that looking at an individual project and seeing whether an individual project, how that will affect some of these big trends and changes and shifts in the, in the economy and jobs going to the South and then jobs leaving the South and going to China and, you know, how, how this will help uh, people, you know, get jobs and opportunities uh, which they may not have in a uh, segregated community.
to my mind, it would seem that you really need something broader than this project-by-project -project approach. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the city council has discussed that. Uh, uh, they've talked about potential legislation to require that. Um, and uh, many cities around the country have done that. So we're going to have all this data, but it's going to be project-by-project. Project. And I don't know, Mitch, do you, do you think this will you know, stop all of those young, uh, college-educated kids who want to live uh, in the South Bronx? I think it's a, it's a provocative piece of legislation. Uh, and what we're talking about is a, a racial impact study that's now required, but will be as of June next year. Uh, this was a bill in the city council sponsored by Germani Williams, all but announced candidate you know, for governor. And I think in some ways, in a lot of ways, really, a well-meaning piece of legislation with regard to its aim at disclosure. As you point out, Ray, it's an effort to put in front of decision makers reams of data about how a neighborhood has evolved. The kinds of things we're talking about now, why things have changed and how. Nothing wrong with disclosure, nothing wrong with making sure that decision makers understand the ethnic racial makeup of the community, understand its history, its uh, changing uh, growth and, and all. Um, but uh, what's more difficult then is what do you do, of course, with the information and how does it guide your decision making? The legislation itself points out that we have the fair housing laws, which of course require that housing is made available to everyone, notwithstanding uh, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, age, and, and various other classifications. So it's not as if we can steer housing towards a particular group, and we wouldn't want to do that. Uh, it's not constitutional. Um, so how do we make sure that a neighborhood retains its character? How do we make sure that we, as we build neighborhoods and deal with growth, that we don't result in displacement? Well, we do it by making sure we build communities. And we build them in a way that provides not just for housing, but provides for daycare centers and community uses and education and support to create anchors that allow people to stay in a place and we do affordable housing whenever we build market rate housing. But I, I, your point, Ray, is that, that we don't have a comprehensive plan, and it seems odd, right, that here we are in New York City, the biggest city in America, twice the size of Los Angeles, and we have no comprehensive plan. And you made reference to one that sort of started but then didn't happen. And, and it, yeah, it seems like why do this sort of thing on a one-off, project-by-project basis? Because it ignores the fact that this, is, this thing is happening, which is to say this change thing, is happening having nothing to do or alongside with projects that get built. It's happening anyway, right? So yeah. uh, uh, why is there no master plan? I don't know. The city the city came up with a master plan back in 1969, 1970. Um, and uh, at that time, city planning um, put it together. Uh, at that time, city planning um, not only did uh, zoning and land use, they also prepared the city's capital budget. So there was an integration, uh, a supposed integration between, you know, what, you know, the density of housing you were planning and other services uh, that would, of a capital nature, you know, the building of the hospitals and libraries and the sewer system. Um, and that was um, put together um, it was done at the time, uh, sort of community board by community board. Uh, wasn't that 
far-reaching in terms of looking into the future. It basically categorized um, you know, what was happening at that, at that time. Um, and those nice books, uh, large format, you know, colorful, uh, now uh, are sitting in people's bookshelves. Um, I haven't looked at eBay to see whether anyone's trying to sell them. Um, but um, they didn't end up um, directing development in the city, certainly not in the terms that we're talking about today, about ethnicity and trying to, uh, I know integration isn't a great word these days, but uh, you know people are talking about trying to have more low-income housing in uh, high-income neighborhoods. But that effort didn't go anywhere. I'm not sure whether it was done because of a, a, a law that required it. Uh, I don't know. Um, but today, we people are yearning to um, put things in context. They, they, there were those who believe that if you put things in context and got buy-in from the majority of folks, you're never going to get buy-in from everybody. But the buy-in from a majority of folks, it could make project approvals uh, much easier. Um, it could it could allow things to happen in a in a more rational way, I guess. Uh, it obviously would uh, would gore a lot of uh, a lot of sacred cows because you would be telling people um, not only what what zoning traditionally was, which is the size and shape of buildings and the uses that can be in them, but it, would, it goes into economics, and it seems to be people wanted to go into ethnicity and racial uh, racial context. Yeah, is and is that really what a comprehensive plan should be? I don't know how you I don't know how you, you interpret all this data and then make the decisions. Yeah, you, you really put your finger on it right there, Ray, in a very wise way. I mean, it, it, uh, there are certain expectations that, that zoning can do uh, all, all kinds of things, and, and it really, as has been said, is a blunt instrument and, and can't really uh, uh, make the kinds of changes. That, that some people think, and, and having these kinds of plans may raise expectations. Um, so, um, well, I think we do need to wrap up. We could we could have this conversation. Wait a minute, we haven't solved anything. <laughs> That's just it. <laughs> we haven't. And we we've talked we've talked it through, but I think it hopefully will stimulate uh, an ongoing conversation uh, between us and then between everyone that's listening, um, because these are important issues as our city. Uh, uh, you know, continues to, to evolve and grow, uh, God willing, our way out of, of the, the pandemic. So thank you. We'll continue this dialogue and, and hopefully have a follow-up soon. Any uh, parting remarks? Address all of your letters uh, <laughs> mail to Herrick Feinstein at 2 Park Avenue, and uh, it will be responded to uh, in the course. <laughs> Very good. Uh, thank you so much, everyone. And, uh, and stay well. Thank you very much for joining us for Herrick's podcast, Herrick Does That. To learn more about our firm and to listen to additional recordings, please visit us at www.herrick.com. <laughs>